Welcome to Full Speed Ahead. I'm Craig Fuller here with Yossi Sheffi, the director of the MIT Center of, of Transportation Logistics and author of the new Abnormal. Yossi, how are you today? Doing very well. Thank you very much. I hope you're doing well. Doing great. You, now, you've been in around the supply chain industry and a uh, well-respected author, thought leader on what's happening, but you've got a new perspective on what the world looks like post or in the current environment. I don't know if post is the right word for COVID-19 because I don't think we're out of the woods just yet, but what, what COVID-19 has really created a, a new uh, economy and really how the supply chain industry is, is having to respond to that. What is the topic and how do you dive into this? Okay, so in order to understand where I'm coming from, I'll tell you how I the story of how I started writing it. And if you look at my history on my side, whatever, every four or five years, I get a new book. So I wrote on resilience, I wrote logistic clusters, I wrote on, on the supply chain sustainability. Usually it takes me four or five years to write a new book. Between the research involving 20, 30 students, postdocs, research associates. So I was about a year and a half into writing my last book, which was on, supply, on innovation in the supply chain. And then in March, I realized that I'm living through the biggest change in supply chain in my lifetime. So um, I stopped everything, and I let most of the people, I mean, assign them to other staff, and just work with two others, and literally slept four hours a night since March. And October 1, the book came out. And it looks at, I don't know, all of the aspects. There are many aspects of... Uh, how things change and trying to do the uh, dangerous thing of trying to project what they might be like going forward. I mean, we know what they're like, let's say, in the next six, 12 months, while we still have the pandemic with us. However, I mentioned in the book that this is an inflection point, similar to um, the Great Depression, that, uh, to World War II, that change institutions and change outlook. And I think this is another inflection point that we'll have a, only in 10 years we'll be able to really appreciate all the changes that, uh, that will be coming on us and we'll be able to see. Now, one of the things you dive into is these technology changes and the acceleration of technology innovation uh, that really would take you know, many years, maybe decades to take place in terms of societal changes. Uh, that have really been accelerated? Yes, of course. Um, interestingly, in many areas, we just see continuation, and not only continuation, acceleration of existing trends. So companies were digitizing already. When we talk about the industry 4.0, supply chain 4.0, it is all about digital and adding tech to uh, to manufacturing, the warehouse, to supply chain, adding automation and drones and the uh, AI and cloud, all of this, the big change right now, that they are being developed and implemented much faster. Especially implemented, it became much easier for companies to realize that it's a must-have. For example, how many companies started doing e-commerce? I mean, it became do or die. It's not a question of we'll do it sometime in the future, we'll look at your competitors, we'll do or die. So not only, you know, Amazon and Target and, and Alibaba and JD.com increased significantly their sale, 
But interestingly, Shopify, a company that enables small companies to do it, has over 1.3 million customers. When we talk about customers, we talk about retailers. They have 1.3 million retailers because people just have to get online or die. I even have the story of a small family-owned business in my neck of the wood that used to be uh, have 20 trucks and, you know, uh, literally family business that supplied the produce, fresh produce from around there in Chelsea, just north of Boston, from around the uh, Boston, New Hampshire farms, uh, not Boston, uh, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine farms, to Boston, to restaurants, to universities, to industrial parks. The business went to zero. In, in, in two weeks, the business went to zero. And they, so they fired everybody, and then they pivoted. The, the wife joined the husband. They, she still worked on another job, but she said, we must go to consumers. They didn't know how to write a website. They knew how to do email. That was about their tech uh, sophistication. They had to write a website. Now, we used it. The reason I know about them is that my wife and I used them. And uh, at the beginning, the website was just a list, a PDF list of stuff that they had. And you had to call them to get uh, to say what you want. Then it became pictures. Then you could order online. Then they started doing some marketing. It was fascinating to see within two months how they became an online powerhouse. A powerhouse. I mean, they had... At one point, they couldn't get new customers because they didn't have the capacity to serve new customers. So, but this is this is a, 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 not a very small business compared to Walmart and Target and all the Amazon, all, all the big ones. But it shows how companies were adapting and how companies were changing, uh, changing their uh, their focus. We also did. Let me just end this part by saying that we also had some. Um, a polls about what um, had about 1,500 consumers saying turns out that about 13% were doing home delivery before it grew to about 35% to about a third. The most interesting part, and we had a lot of other uh, information there, but the most interesting part is about one-third of people who change said they will, change, they will stay with the change. So people who did a lot more e-commerce, a lot, you know, home delivery, liked it. They're going to stay. Not, not everybody, but about a third of them will say, pandemic or not, we're going to stay with it. And then a lot of other changes. Anyway. Yeah, it's amazing when companies and entrepreneurs' backs are against the wall, how they end up completely rethinking their business. I know there's high-end restaurants here in town and other cities that have that would never have done takeout or delivery, and, and to them it was way beneath their brand, had been forced to consider it. And it seems that that's going to be a permanent fixture. Do you, these changes that we, we think about, whether it's grocery delivery or companies uh, like this uh, produce uh, farmed up to table business that you, do, you discuss, is this a permanent change? Or once things, once we have a vaccine and once there's, a level of comfort and health. Do, do we go back to the way things were before? Is this is this just a permanent fixture for us? I'll give you the professor answer. It depends. Uh, <laughs> um, for some businesses, for the high end businesses, they're not. It still, I think, will be beneath them. 
because what they sell is uh, cachet and service. You talk about the high-end restaurants, the nice service, the white, uh, you know, um, table covers and all this. They're going to go with it. On the other hand, you see places that adapted impressively, like Chipotle. Chipotle started Chipotle Lane. They started, um, you know, the living. You go, you go with your car, but you don't stand in line at the window like the old McDonald's and all this. It's by appointment. The beauty of this is not only people come and they don't have to wait uh, to wait at the window to get their uh, their stuff, but now they got permissions to open in lots of other places because zoning laws were restricting the number of cars because they were getting congestion they didn't like, they needed a lot of space. Now they can open a takeout window in every location. And they're doing this. Uh, Domino has a whole new head. They just started rolling out in five or ten restaurants a new app that does much of the same thing, and now they roll it everywhere. As opposed to several competitors, California Pizza, Pizza Hut, that were out of business. Because they didn't respond that that quickly, so it's it's Darwin all over again. It's not the 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 strong. It's not the fast. It's the adaptable. It's the flexible who survive, and that's what we see. Companies yeah. that immediately. It's, it's, go ahead. it's interesting you mentioned Domino's because I think most people think of it as a pizza uh, place, but in reality. They're one of the world's most sophisticated logistics providers. I mean, Absolutely. I mean, they, they innovated uh, the home delivery model for, for pizza and uh, continued to just push the envelope on logistics. And so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned them. Uh, thinking about the logistics industry and how it's responded, this has obviously been a major task where the industry has been on the front line what have you seen the changes in the industry itself, the providers that have provided transportation logistics services? Where have you seen the, the opportunities for those companies? Okay, so uh, it's a long answer, but I'll try to make it reasonable. It started with the fact that uh, the biggest change personally was people used to ask my wife, what does your husband do? And she used to say he's in supply chain, and they looked at her like during the headlight. Now everybody says, wow. <laughs> your husband is everybody knows everybody understand that supply chain are the the provision of standard, of all the items that we get uh, on the store that we get uh, everywhere i made a point in the book and in some of my blogs and writing that a, a lot of the media does not understand supply chain and of course we know if it bleeds it leads so there were a lot of alarmist um, headlines by respected companies, by the BBC, by the New York Times, by, you know, we are running out of food, there's shortage of eggs, shortage of meat, shortage of this. Or this. It's all nonsense. I'm actually saying that I'm, I'm, even in my presentation, I'm quoting Churchill. This was our finest hour. Because if you think, for example, about food, what changed? Half the food usually goes to institutions. They were closed. So, and it goes in, in big packs, in different, uh, uh, um, different packaging, in truckload. This is gone. Now you have to supply supermarket in small packaging with all the information and nutrition. And by the way, people stop buying produce. People 
We're talking about in general, a lot less produce, a lot more pasta, a lot more bread, a lot more cans, a lot of comfort food. So not only the, the, the type of, of customer change, what they buy change. Yet, despite all the media hoopla, there was no shortage of food. And if somebody couldn't buy the right cut of meats that they like or the flavor of granola bar that they like, this is not a reason. I'm just thinking in my, I didn't write in the book, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking somebody living in London doing the blitz, that will say people complaining about the right kind out of, you know, a hundred types of, uh, um, of cuts of meat, they didn't have one or two. It was ridiculous. Now, I should say that only one area there was real shortage. This is PPEs and some medical supplies. But that's honestly on the government because we used to have a national stockpile of medical supplies. It started during the Clinton administration. The Bush administration built it up significantly. And then the, uh, the um, Trump administration, the uh, uh, Obama administration, just withered it away, did not replenish it, and Trump also did not replenish it. So we got to where we got. But this is an area where the government should have stepped in because no, no private companies can keep the amount of inventory that is needed for something like the pandemic. And by the way, just to make sure, you don't need an infinite amount of inventory. You need to cover four to six months because in four to six months, industry can change. We saw it how companies started making ventilators, started making masks, started making everything that, that the industry, but it takes time to adjust. So the, the, the strategic inventory should cover the time of adjustment. And it didn't even cover this, obviously, because we had the frontline workers without PPEs, and this was atrocious, and many of them died. I mean, this was a huge failure. Anyway, I... I can no, go I, on I, and on. It's, <laughs> I want you to talk about what you want to talk. I'm glad you pointed out the remarkable media attention and the respect that supply chain professionals are getting. You know, we we cover a lot in the trucking market, and oftentimes truck drivers and folks in trucking get little garner little respect from the broader media, broader uh, uh, populace, just because it's an un, traditionally viewed as an unsexy industry, people view it as a dirty industry, and that seems to have changed. And I don't know if it's permanent. I hope that there is a level of permanence there. But now you hear a lot of people in broader media talking about truck drivers in a very positive fashion, talking about the industry and the resilience of the industry. And I, I think it's interesting you point out because I remember in March going to the grocery store and all of the meat was sold out. And then you would go in the very next morning and it would be completely full again. And I would often tell people that's, that's logistics and supply chain. And no, people no, no. would comment. Have, Go ahead. I have, in my presentation, I have pictures. And I had this argument with friends who are journalists in the Wall Street journals in the New York Times everywhere because they used to show this picture of empty aisles. And I said, guys, I, dollars to donuts. I'll give you anything you took this picture in the evening. Yes, they did the picture. I said, get the same place the next morning. <laughs> You'll see everything. Because what you don't realize, and by the way, I should tell you, I cannot tell you how many uh, um, interviews I had when the person interviewing me started saying, you know, up to now I've been a sports writer. Now they asked me to talk about supply chain. 
So the, many of the people who cover it were just clueless. And I tried to explain, you know, stuff goes from the warehouse to the store, it comes back at night, then they, you know, uh, break the pallets, they put it on during the night because they don't want to be uh, all, the, all the customers running around while, while they're replenishing the ship. Take the same stuff in the morning. Exactly. As I said, if it bleeds, it bleeds. That's the, the media in the fight for clicks, uh, scary headlines sell. So they gave you scary headlines. Yeah, Yossi, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it works so well and the logistics and supply chain industry is so efficient. I mean, there are certain inefficiencies, but it actually works. That people just take it for granted. It's much like the power company. You don't think about the power company and the generation of electricity until your power's out, or the water company. And I, I, think, I think a lot of it's just because it works so well, and I think that's why the industry is often forgotten. I know when I go out and tell people that I built a media business dedicated to freight and logistics and supply chain, I get this sort of, or historically I've gotten this very strange look, like can you actually build a media business? Is there enough content? And I tell people, we just can't keep up with everything happening. I think now people have a much greater appreciation for that than they did before. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, uh, but let's, let's talk about some other aspects of, uh, uh, of what happened during uh, COVID. And I think one thing clearly that happened, just like after 9-11, when to get back into the airport, you had to make them safe or at least the pretense of safe, but you had to make, you know, TSA and tests and all this, and, and the pilot doors were uh, armed, uh, armed or strengthened. Now you have to, to get people, whether it's workers, whether it's customers to get to your facility, you have to make it safe. So you have to, and people are doing it, of course, but it becomes a competitive advantage. You see how the airlines are competing with each other who leave the, you know, the middle seat open. And what are the procedures? And they publish on their website all the procedures that they do. And in the book, I tell a, a real story of my wife. Most of the stories that I have are from, about my wife. But she, <laughs> she had a 25-year relationship with her hairdresser. And the hairdresser was not, she, she came and saw they were not taking it seriously. They were doing blow-dry, they were doing that. So she went to somebody else who took it at 5 in the morning without anybody coming. And now she likes the new one better. So I'm just saying it's, it's, it becomes a competitive advantage how you can keep, keep safe. In the book, I cover a lot of other aspects. I talk about the future of higher education, talk about government. In fact, we may, we may want to talk a little bit about that because um, government, of course, affects everything and, and, and supply chain because of trade relationship, because of uh, all kinds of regulation. And whether, it, this is not a, a, a statement on the elections, but regardless, government will become bigger. And it's become bigger because government put so many trillion dollars into the economy and did so many things. Government all over the world, not the same, not only the United States. The people will get used to it, will expect more from government, and government will keep growing. And there will be more regulation Regardless of who comes out in, the, in this election, in this country, in other country, there will be more heavy footprint of the government, which will affect a lot of the things that the, that the logistics profession is facing. Do they make significant investments in a logistics core, or is, do you anticipate them actually 
you talked about inventories being slacked around medical supplies. Does that change? Do we see a precipitous change? When you say government playing a bigger impact, certainly with the dollars, the amount of dollars that they put in the economy, but where, where will the logistics and supply chain industry see the impact? First of all, I think that, uh, you know what amazing to me, I always say when you look at the COVID task force that the Vice President Pence was leading, said the one thing that's missing there is a procurement professional. And I, <laughs> you know, the procurement of PPEs, okay, we had, we had no inventory or very little inventory. Now the procurement, instead of running it, they just say, okay, states do it, hospitals do it, everybody competes with everybody else, raising the price. There was such misunderstanding of basic procurement and supply chain concepts that cost us a lot of money. Cost, cost, and, and, and created uh, a created shortage. And by the way, to be fair, this was not only, you know, the U.S. administration, European administration, others were uh, were not much better. So I hope that what will happen, the better understanding how important trade, procurement, supply chain, how we manage the ports, how we Think about how we manage the port. We're the only country that allow ports to invest without having a strategic plan for the ports. I mean, the local port wants to do something. So what happens? The ports start competing with that. Port right next to each other start competing with the other. There's no strategy behind it. So I'm, there's no strategy for investment in uh, in highways. There's no strategy. So we really lack a supply chain, logistic, transportation strategy. So I hope, now, to be sure, none of the candidates are talking about it yet. But I hope that um, a lot of the um, debrief, after-action debrief, that will come six months, a year from now, about what happened, and they'll be the first wave to just blame everybody for what happened. But beyond this, what can we do better? I hope there will be enough thinking people who will realize that a lot of the failures was in the government approach to logistics and that the profession, the trucking, the transportation, the driver, the warehousemen, the retailers perform well in spite, in spite of the government, not because of the government. So I hope there will be more attention being paid to it and maybe better planning for the country's supply chain. Yeah, 100%, I agree. So the government's going to get an opportunity, Yossi, with the vaccine distribution. What do you anticipate that's going to look like? I think we see the first signs, talking about the American government, I assume, in this case. I see the first sign of thinking a little better about it. Operation Warp Speed, for example, the fact that it was organized along one project to try to get the vaccine quickly and invest and do parallel investing in, uh, in the production has a chance of getting, let's say, by Q1 next year, a vaccine approved, or even maybe by December, but I'm not sure about this. Uh, by Q1, one of the vaccines in, in phase three trial, one, two, three, will be approved. Now the question is, which vaccine? The huge differences, for example, the, the Moderna vaccine require at least two doses, and you have to store it in minus 80 degrees. So this is not just cold storage. This is deep cold storage. On the other hand, the J&J &J vaccine is, I think, at zero. 
uh, uh, you have to store it and require only one dose. So these are two very different challenges. I don't see how deep cold can be distributed in Africa. It just there's no facilities there to distribute it, or in certain parts of uh, uh, of Latin America. So there'll be a first wave that will be for for the United States that presumably will go to, um, I hope, to first line medical workers first. They really need to because they are dealing with people who are actually sick, and then go to honestly people in logistics, starting with the people who deal with the public, which means retail clerks, retail people on, people on the front who deal who deal with retail, anybody who deal with the public on a regular basis should be among the first the, uh, the first stage. Um, so I hope it will continue to be um, you know, managed from centrally managed. I hope it will not turn into senators and congressmen fighting with each other and doing deals about distribution more to my state or to my uh, constituent versus somebody else's, but look at the country as a whole. There's there, there been a discussion about the military being involved. Do you support that? I think that right now the military is one of the few organizations that still has the trust of the American people. So I would say I would support it because I think the military still is one of the few organizations, if you look at the the, 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 uh, the rating of Congress, <laughs> down down to the singles, uh, <laughs> everybody believes that their congressmen are, 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 is great, but all the others are corrupt and, and nothing, and not worth <laughs> being, uh, being in Congress. But in general, the, um, the, uh, the belief in how Congress does its job is, is very low. So I hope we can get it out Somehow, out of the um, out of the political arena, and maybe we can do something. Maybe it can oversee by something like we did in the military plant closing, a bipartisan commission that will oversee how the military actually does it. I don't think it needs particularly the military. The logistic, the, the, the private logistics uh, organization. If well monitored and if we don't get too much political in, involvement, can do it. And by the way, I don't think the military can do it by itself. The military will have to use UPS and you know <laughs> a lot of trucking companies to do it because they don't have enough cold, cold transportation and cold storage. So you have to use. So the, the question is, who writes the check? Who writes the contract? Okay. The military has a procurement process, so hopefully they can manage it. They have a protocol to do that and sort of congressional uh, support to appropriate money. So I, I'm in full support of that, but I do think, and I agree, that the private sector and the private logistics professionals must be involved, if nothing more than just capacity that they can bring. One last thing I want to talk about is the impact you've written before about logistics clusters. You've also written about uh, the green uh, green supply chain, a sustainable supply chain. When we think about city centers like New York and San Francisco, where people are leaving those centers, that's, that to me is going to create a, a lot of changes to how supply chains respond and how logistics infrastructure responds. What is your take on this sort of flight out of big cities and what can the logistics and supply chain industry expect from that? 
Okay, so several uh, elements there. First, I think that this is not a long-term uh, trend. It will happen. What do you mean it will happen? It's happening already, as you speak, especially in New York. Um, I should tell you that in Boston, real estate price in Boston is skyrocketing, not like New York at all. I mean, I, when I say skyrocketing, it's like 40% since January. I mean, huge increase um, in Boston and Cambridge. You know, so there are several uh, conflicting trends. I don't, in the short term, I don't want to be the real estate holder of a large office building in downtown anywhere because <laughs> this office building, I'm not going to pay the rent. But we had the, some of the same worries after 9-11 when people didn't want to go into the high floors and, you know, three or four years later, high floors became as desirable as before. Uh, we had some of this before in, in Boston in the, in, in the early 70s. You couldn't, you know, sell a condo if your life depended on it, if it was in, uh, uh, in the city. Yet prices are now rivaling, you know, rivaling San Francisco and, and, and Silicon Valley. They're up unbelievable height. I'm talking about $2,500 per square foot in downtown Boston, in, downtown, in, in, in Cambridge. That's ridiculous. That's, uh, but, so I think while it happens in some cities, now it will come back. Cities will come back. It may take longer than before, but this is just based on history. This is not based on my book because I had no data on this. Uh, nobody has data on it, and I like to make statements based on data. So I'll say right now, it's uh, as Niels Bohr said, it's uh, it's dangerous to predict, especially the future. So <laughs> you know, especially uh, in a book that's that is permanent record of your predictions there. So I, I, I uh, do some prediction. I do some <laughs> prediction. I talk about uh, you know higher education. I talk about. Uh, I talk about another, just last point. People talk that globalization is over. It's not. People are not going to, most companies are not leaving China. Uh, they spend decades building ecosystems, supplier, supplier, supplier in China. And the media doesn't understand that if you take the final assembly out of China, it doesn't mean you go out of China. You still have lots of, all the supply chains built in China. Some companies are putting an extra, the incremental investment uh, um, elsewhere. So a lot of things are not going to be as dramatic as people think, uh, think they are. But we will see, come back to your point about cities. If you can work, if you can be in a Boston company and work from Kansas City because your relative lives in Kansas City, you can also work from New Delhi. You can work from Buenos Aires. So we may see a wave of, white-collar globalization as opposed to manufacturing, you know, blue-collar, low-cost globalization, just because people who build software, who do a lot of other things that don't, now we see they don't require to be in the office, so we may see some white-collar globalization going. Yeah, that's happened in logistics. Colombia has become a big mecca for a lot of the brokerage, freight brokerages building um, nearshoring operations in Colombia. There's a couple of companies that actually specialize in that. Um, last point that I'd, I'd like for you to dive into is this concept of, of green supply chain and global supply chains. Obviously, it's going to be a big topic during the election or has become a big topic during the election. Uh, it, it seems like 
COVID took precedence and health took precedence over sustainability, and rightfully so. But this is a trend that's going to continue for many years. What are your expectations in terms of sustainability and sustainable supply chain? Okay, I have a different take, maybe because I've, this is a, was my last book was about sustainability. What is clear to me, and this is based on data, is that people are not willing to pay for it. When you have consumers, you have pollsters doing all kinds of polls, and they say 70% of millennials are going to pay more for sustainable beer. Or that. When you do actual studies in the supermarket, which I did because I started talking about it, and people say, you don't know what you're talking about, I said, look, when people are value signaling at polls, they said, of course, they'll do, they say what the pollster wants to hear. What they do in the supermarket when they buy, that's the only thing that counts. So we did study. I put students at the end of the aisle, just watch what people were buying in, in four supermarkets in, uh, in the Boston area when they had a green awning with the sustainable um, recycled paper, sustainable detergent, sustainable soap, not organic, because some people buy organic, they think it's, it's more healthy. So I look just at the sustainability. And next to it are the regular items. It turned out to be about 5%. And I'm people who buy sustainable. I'm talking Boston, one of the most progressive states in the country. It's just people are not just not. In, in Europe, by the way, studies like mine, few and far between, are about 8 to 12%, sometimes 14%, depending on who's doing, who's doing the study. So my point is when consumers are not willing to pay for it, corporates, despite all the statement, will go net zero by a year X. And they can't do much about it because if the customers are not going to pay for it, they're not going to do it. Governments cannot do much about it because, in general, you see what happened when the French tried to raise the uh, um, the carbon tax, by which raised the fuel tax by 2%. Paris was burning, and the Australian government failed. And in Oregon, you couldn't, Oregon, you couldn't get um, you know, carbon tax uh, twice. Twice it failed in a, in a referendum. So I talk about the fact the solution is technology. We see already some technology working in renewable, renewable price, renewable cost, and it's going down and the more implementation. But at the end of the day, we will need to find a way to take carbon out of the air. Through carbon sequestration, there are a lot of methods that are in the lab, and they have to be. So the good news is air follow. What we learned from the COVID, and COVID and, and supply chain are very similar. They're a global problem. They require cooperation. And we need to listen to the scientists in both cases. So we now know that we should have listened to the, to the, to the warning about a, a pandemic for years. I mean, it's been, I quote in the book, many of the early warnings. We get the warning right now about global warming. So A, I hope we listen to the scientists. B, if we will invest a small part of the trillions of dollars that were invested in not only in, uh, uh, in the economy, but in the science of developing and now and very soon distributing vaccine, we know the solution was technology. We went back to scientists and engineers. So I think also in the green, there will be companies, uh, government was serious, will invest massively in technologies, technology to get CO2 and other greenhouse gas out of the air, because otherwise there is no way to solve the problem, because people forget that over 50% of humanities are living at less than $5 a day, and they want to get to middle class. As they get into middle class, 
they'll have cars, they'll eat meat, they'll build uh, uh, concrete houses, lots more emissions. So we have to find a way not only to reduce emission, but to take emissions out of the air. So anyway, you got a, a longer answer than, than just what, what uh, politicians are talking about right now. Well, Dr. Sheffi, I look forward to uh, seeing the progression of this story around the new abnormal. You can pick up the book on Amazon. It's available by Kindle. Uh, it will be hardback at the end of the month, so be sure to check that out. You can also read some of his other works. One of my favorite books that he's written is Logistics Clusters, which talks about this concentration of why cities like Memphis, Tennessee, uh, are a core, logistics is a core part of it. Certainly in Chattanooga, we've seen a lot of trucking operations based here for many of the same reasons he points out in the book. Do check out The New Abnormal. It is one of the uh, first books and deepest dive books about what a post or uh, uh, COVID-19 quarantine looks like in terms of society and supply chain. Uh, Dr. Sheffy, really appreciate you coming on today.